Special thanks to our new patron, Mariana L. My name is Aaron Rogerson, and I'm here with Alyssa Polizzi. Today, we are joined by Anderson Todd, who is a psychotherapist and assistant director of the University of Toronto's Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Lab. Anderson will be discussing with us Carl Jung, alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone, and other topics. So our discussion with Anderson will be followed by an audience Q&A. So feel free to throw your questions for him into the chat, and then we'll call on you during the Q&A portion of the session. This is going to be recorded and posted on YouTube. So if you don't want to be on camera or have your voice captured, just communicate that in the chat and we'll read the question for you. And also since this is being recorded to YouTube, we ask that you turn off your video during the discussion, and then we'll bring the audience video back during Q&A. Um, so everyone could do that, please. Thank you very much. And yeah, let's get started. Hello, Anderson. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Aaron, and hi, Alyssa. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much for having me. I appreciate the offer. Yeah, we're really excited to jump into alchemy today. I think this is a topic that a lot of people know is associated with Jung, but there's not, I think, a lot of depth to the understanding of Jung's work with alchemy. So before we jump into it more deeply, can you just give us some brief thoughts on alchemy, Jung's relationship with it, how he really incorporated it into his theory? Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, alchemy sort of falls into the um, the the latter half in many ways of, of Jung's career and of his writings. And, um, you know, when I teach the courses on, on Jung at the university, often what I tell my students is, you know, he has 50 years worth of, of sort of prolific productivity. And you can roll through that and personally decide the line at which it's become too weird for you and stop there. And before that line, you may be able to, to accept stuff. And after that line, you might not. So people differ pretty widely in terms of how metaphysically receptive they are to things like synchronicity. Alchemy tends to fall um, into that into that category, right? When people encounter it, it's a bit it's a bit off-putting, it's odd, and, and hard for people to grasp what precisely the relationship might be um, to sort of depth psychology and psychology as we normally think of it at all. Um, so, you know, briefly, okay, alchemy, you know, what's alchemy? Alchemy is a bunch of different systems, which were often, um, of course, you know, uh, idiosyncratically constructed by individual practitioners. Uh, it turned up in a bunch of different areas of the world, but in the West, um, you know, we have a primary root of sort of the, the Gnostics. Um, we have um, strong Arabic influences on it, right? So uh, alchemy and chemistry have a, a common root. Um, and that stuff ends up mixing together with sort of a broad swath of uh, her hermetic philosophy and other sorts of somewhat outside the church philosophies, um, such that there is a, a flowering of this stuff that sort of occurs multiple times. Like Gnosticism, it sort of crops up and then falls away. And it's something, something of a, a fringier phenomenon. It's something of an outsider phenomenon in the West. But it always has a certain amount of credibility. And the reason is because alchemy ends up with sort of two streams, which are in dialogue with each other in the West, but are pretty variable between practitioners. And that's sort of the spiritual stream of alchemy and what we're called the practical stream 
of alchemy. The practical stream of alchemy, um, you know, properly speaking, is involved in things like the conversion of lead into gold. And this is something that, you know, any duke, baron, or prince that had some money lying around might be interested in throwing some cash at if somebody seemed like they had a, a plausible means of doing so, right? And there are certainly lots of core processes that come out of that practical side of alchemy that, you know, we don't typically attribute to alchemy, but basically the development of chemistry, um, the development of dyes, uh, to some extent electroplating, like there were a lot of techniques and things that came out of that physicalist and practical side. Um, yeah, and indeed, you know, chemistry as we now think of it sort of calves off from that. Jung's concern was the spiritual side of alchemy. And this um, is more and less apparent depending on the text that you read, but it's very clear in some texts, and he maintains that it is, you know, sort of in broad strokes part of the, of the tradition as a whole, that at least some people are treating alchemy not merely as a set of physical transformations for fun and profit, but also as a means of um, kind of projective, meditative, spiritual transformation. And within the general sort of hermetic framework, right, the as above, so below framework, there is a Neoplatonic microcosm, macrocosm thing that means that the implications of transforming base matter or lead into gold in the environment is that one is simultaneously elevating their own spiritual material. In alchemy, when Jung begins to study it, he sees the sort of Baroque, um, symbolically exotic, right, panels and images and processes which are being described in these alchemical texts, which are otherwise quite, if you don't study the stuff deeply, it's pretty impenetrable when you go through these texts there, right? It's exotic and weird. It's like looking at the, the Voynich manuscripts or something, if you're familiar with those, right? They're just odd. Um, he sees in this um, a, a kind of close analogy for the sort of work that he was doing, archetypally speaking, you know, with his clients and with dream work and so on and so forth. And so what he saw was, in some sense, alchemy as a, um, a sort of a pure substrate upon which the projection of complexes and archetypal dynamics could occur, and which then allowed external manipulation and therefore right, was kind of like a manual for self-transformation, what he calls a, a yoga of the West, as it were. Um, that tends to be pretty hard to grasp uh, for people. And so, you know, the idea that, that you know, the, the kind of thing that people think about when they think about alchemy, if indeed they think about it at all, can be thought of as um, a kind of spiritual psychotechnology uh, and could be thought of as like a tradition of um, spiritual work and importantly, a tradition of, um, it has a really strong solo ethic which distinguishes it from a great number of sort of spiritual traditions, right? It, the alchemists didn't have sanghas, so to speak. And so there is a kind of personal experimental transformative aspect of it. Um, but, you know, although it has been an undercurrent in the West for 2000 years or longer, right? It has always been this peripheral thing and sort of remains so, right? None of this obviously got mainstreamed into psychology or psychotherapy uh, as we normally think of it. So does that kind of outline? Yeah, so I'm gonna try and mirror back some of what you said. So I'm I'm kind of seeing alchemy in some sense of an attempt to make sense of the world, 
right? But of a kind of a primitive way of doing that. And so today we think of science as being this thing that's kind of obvious, but in the past it wasn't so obvious. So there's sort of this phenomenological trying to make sense of the world, combining with a kind of more physical scientific making sense of the world that are kind of like one thing with alchemy, right? And as time moves on, they kind of branch apart where like you get this kind of science religion division, but in the past they were almost sort of one thing. Is that kind of, you know in what you're some, talking about? In, in some ways, right? So that, that sort of often gets presented that there's this calving off. And I actually do have some, I have some material around that. One of the claims that I have made in the past uh, is that uh, the inheritor in some ways of alchemy in the modern sense is not chemistry. Chemistry is gone and it's not coming back. It's uh, cognitive science. Uh, which is the discipline that I'm trained in. So we can we can get into that down the road because that's obviously an argument in its own right. Um, I don't think it's quite as simple as, you know, there's this explanation of the world. That's true. But the important thing to remember in that respect is that the core framework for rendering explanations of the world prior to the scientific revolution, right, uh, was not uh, primarily based in causality, but rather was based in um, principles of uh, similarity and resemblance. So if you look, for instance, at the, at the Middle Ages, right, the, the primary sort of explanatory tool that gets brought to bear in constructing sort of world models and trying to figure things out phenomenologically is things like uh, the doctrine of signatures, tables of correspondence. So, so sort of modes of resemblance. And uh, we see the leftovers of those tables of correspondence and, and systems, right, of... Um, resemblance now, right? Birthstones, uh, tarot cards translating down to playing cards, uh, horoscopes in the newspaper, like the fragments of it are left over. But that coherent system, that kind of tableau system of archetypal relations and relations by resemblance that structured thinking um, in, in for a long period in the West isn't there. Alchemy operated within that to a significant extent for a long time. And so you know, you can imagine for a second, you take two chemicals, you pour them together, and then you are entering a state of light trance or meditation as you look at the Alembic. And there are, in fact, visible chemical transformations occurring, right? You may get color changes, volume changes, right? Something is evaporating and condensing. Those raw physical changes, however, become a somewhat predictable substrate on which symbolic meaning is projected. So if, if you, you know, see two chemicals, you mix a red chemical and a white chemical, and suddenly it becomes a green chemical, right? What, what you're doing is operating within that table of correspondence, and you are sort of interpreting it. Very often in the medieval framework, they looked at these things as reading the, the mind of God or reading the language of God. But it's this idea of like interpreting the phenomenology according to these principles of resemblance within a symbolic framework. So alchemy sort of emerges from that. The closer we get to the modern era, the more, the more the two lines tend to run in parallel. There's less communication between the sort of spiritual aspect and the physicalist aspect. But um, yeah, it, it, it locks into an explanation of the world because it emerges from the Aristotelian worldview and the notion of the elements, uh, right? And um, Neoplatonic doctrine, right? That things are, are sort of self-determined and can be self-organizing. Uh, and in that sense, it's all quite radical, actually. It's, it's very, um, it was a real underground movement that challenged a lot of the stuff that the, the, that the church had stock in. So it was sort of, yeah, counterculture. 
in a lot of Jung's writing, I think we tend to see the the kind of four classic stages of alchemy brought up. Like I think probably most famously the negrito, the blackening, or the albedo, the whitening, and that's where I think we're starting to tap into these archetypal relations where we see like the darkening of the material that can then have this sort of um, inner projection of one's uh, kind of venturing into the to the unconscious realm and dealing with the shadow um, mm-hmm. of those kind of. Classic stages. Um, do you feel that there's any of those that have any particular significance in Jung's work? Um, any of those that you'd like to speak to, just in terms of you know psychological as well as that physical transformation? Interesting question. Um, when you look at the alchemical texts, the sort of stages and the orders and the operationalization are quite variable, right? They're they're somewhat. Um, you know, you don't get a high level of agreement necessarily between alchemists. They quibble over points. Um, and that to me is quite consistent with Jung's own approach. You know, so even though he offers a sort of, for instance, he offers a shorthand on individuation and the shorthand goes something like, right? First you do shadow work and that's the apprentice piece. And then you do, right? Uh, your contrasexual soul image work and that's the uh, journeyman piece. And then finally you do self-work. And he's quite, uh, emphatic, really, that like the map isn't the territory and you can't get too hung up on these stages and it's a whole lot woolier and more complicated than that. Likewise, alchemically speaking, there is a progression and you can kind of categorize, right? You can look at the various stages and transformations and so on and so forth. And there definitely are some useful transitionary things that he looks at, but you know, you can only reify those things in the same way as language reifies things. Like the words that you use for things are not themselves, they're not entities in the world. And the categories that you're using in this alchemical stuff, these are rough and ready handles. He doesn't get too hung up on that. But, I, you know, he definitely puts his attention in certain places. I mean, um, the Nigredo and the Mortificatio both get interesting attention from him. So the Nigredo as the blackening, of course, he sees as being akin to, to shadow work, something that he was, um, you know, sort of deeply um, concerned with. And um, yeah, certainly, you know, this idea of the darkening, he spends lots of time on the, the notion of the base material in and of itself. So the starting of the work. And when you look at alchemical texts, the base material is a subject of enormous argument between alchemists, like what is the base material? Is it lead? Is it, right? And they were sort of like, um, they got into a bit of a competitive uh, race to see like who could come up with the lower form of base material, you know? Is it shit? Is it rotting human organs? Is it, you know, what is it? It's something awful. Um, Jung, of course, equates this with not just the shadow, but also importantly with the unconscious material period, right? And this idea, I mean, apropos of your podcast, right? This idea of the golden shadow that you can reach um, into the muck and recover something that is valuable or that the muck can in some way be transformed, right? Obviously was a preoccupation of his. He also has interesting writings around the mortificatio, which, um, you know, is a, is a dying, but also a, a humbling right? And emotionally speaking, right? We think about, oh God, I'm mortified. Well, to be mortified, right? Is, t- is to sort of have, have a, a crumpling up experience. To be mortified is to feel deeply embarrassed by association. Oh God, mortified. 
right? That experience of mortification and its link to the mortificatio is something that he talks about. He talks a fair bit about salt and sulfur and mercury. I mean, his material is somewhat wide ranging in this respect, but I think it's important again to remember that like the kinds of general archetypal categories that he's pointing out, he's quite insistent that we not get hung up and reify the categories. Um, and the alchemists themselves, obviously, right, differed considerably in terms of how they decided to kind of carve up the cake. Yeah. Um, how much do you guys, just as a matter of interest, how much do you deal with like neo-Jungians and post-Jungians? Um, I, I dabble a fair bit. So if okay. you've got some other uh, individuals that you'd like to throw in, you know, Von Franz, Hillman, um, Hollis, BB, any of those guys? So Edinger is where I usually point people. And it, it um, I have some issues with Edinger's uh, archetypal takes. I think he's got a, he has a particular skew in a project as most of the post-Jungians do. So he, he brings a particular kind of approach to the material. But Edinger's book, The Anatomy of the Psyche, uh, which lays out this kind of seven core stages is extremely lucid. And although I typically recommend that people like complexify and weird their view of it after that, it gives a nice, gives such nice clean takes to work with initially, you know, and as I have said in many places, like, I love reading Jung, but reading Jung is not like reading Freud, right? You read Freud and there is an extremely lucid experience waiting for you on every page. He's a clear and compelling writer. Reading Jung is not like this. You know, you wade through, it's often beautiful, but it's also like wading through mud up to your chest. And you're like, oh God, like oh, this passage is literally written in Greek. Uh, but then of course you find that jewel so I find that having that companion volume there to sort of give you the framework and clarify is enormously useful. And then you can break away from it and progressively weird things. Um, yeah, and there are a number of good authors, but Edinger is typically where I recommend people kind of dig in Anatomy of the Psyche. Yeah, I'm curious if you also recommend um, Marie-Louise von Franz's work with alchemy or her writing on it as she was working very closely with Jung as well. <laughs> Yeah, um, I do, um, and I and I like her writing. It's it's crisper than Jung's, and it has, um, in the same way as she has her pulse on fairy tales. There's sort of, um, she has a better sense of the blood in things. Like she picks up the pulse in things in some ways better than Jung does. She's good, but she's also very close because they work so close together, and so. In some ways, she's expressing things in orthodox Jungian terms that for many people, you know, it's useful as a comparison text, but it's maybe not a great intro uh, is what I'm getting at. Another person that I would recommend, though, is um, Jeffrey Raff. So, you, you know, it, people who are into this, I typically point them first at, you know, whatever, General, General Jung to get some footholds. Uh, then Edinger, uh, but then I often point them to Jeffrey Raff, who has a good book called um, "God Active Imagination and the Alchemical." No, Alchemical Imagination and the Active Something. Anyway, it's a Jeffrey Raff book. It's good, <laughs> um, which explores this stuff. I think in more embodied, lived terms, uh, it's sort of more practical in some sense. So the Philosopher's Stone is kind of a 
fairly well-known meme, I guess, of alchemy. What is the philosopher's stone? What is its symbolic or psychological significance? How does it relate to alchemy? How does it relate back to Jung, if at all? So this is one of these areas where there is a real tangle of understanding. The philosopher's stone is often presented not actually as the pinnacle of the alchemical work, but as an intermediary catalyst. When you get far enough in your work that you can produce the alchemist stone, the alchemist stone then serves to further your ability to kind of trans conduct transformation. So it's kind of catalyst. This gets described in lots of texts as like the alchemist stone can then be touched to base metals and they transform this kind of thing, or that merely being in the possession of the stone confers certain kinds of benefits, longer life, et cetera, et cetera. The alchemist stone is in some ways almost interchangeable with the elixir, right? Which is this, right? It's an immortality potion, but you know, to simply think of it in terms of like, you, you drink this and it extends 20 years of life, Dungeons and Dragons style is missing what an elixir is in the sense, right? That it is an imbibable thing that is sort of transforming you into something else. It's moving you up the ladder of being from the inside to drink it. So the stone is this intermediary. Um, the way the stone is described is highly variable. Sometimes it is described as a jewel, but it is also described in other terms. So when I was doing some of my early research in this area, I dug into a lot of alchemical texts. And one of the things I kept stumbling across was the description of the stone as red and waxy. And like, you know, a month of drilling into this. And I had a lot of very interesting dreams which appeared to comment on it, but I had like a really hard time trying to figure like, why would a stone be waxy or red? And there are some interesting commentaries you can find in the alchemical texts, right? That the relationships between alchemy and the stone and the honey and the bees, like there's suddenly there's a, an apiary metaphor there. So long story short, there's sort of a lot of material around it. And depending on which alchemist you're reading, you can pull that stuff apart. For Jung, the alchemist stone, I think, becomes um, primarily the, the symbol for him of a psychoid reality of the self. So, so what do I mean by this? So in, in his later metaphysics, right, Jung is concerned with the notion that the archetypes are not just sort of the psychological version of, you know, the reflex that you get when you tap your knee with a hammer, right? In the early versions, he treats them as reflexes or as instincts. So sort of a biological reality, psychologically expressed. But the further on he goes, and especially when he starts to become concerned with synchronicity, he begins to construct a metaphysics that extends past that considerably. And he begins to see the archetypes as in some sense, standing outside the apparently dual division of mind and world, which is pretty exotic stuff for most people and certainly for most psychologists. Within that framework, the archetypes are psychoid because they are capable of sort of extending themselves simultaneously into each of those apparent worlds. And the reason is that they exist in the actual one world, right? The unus, unus mundus. This is a very Platonic idea, right? It's very Neoplatonic. Uh, in its way, right? There is an, an overworld of really real things that sort of poke their fingers into the apparent domains of the world and my mind. And that's why those things appear to um, 
to be connected in the way that they are. Um, so for Jung, the, the alchemist stone um, becomes an image of the, the self, the capital S self in his system. And it's also psychoid. So the attainment of the stone is about finding, uh, you know, an object of psychic solidity, right? Something that seems paradoxical. Our thoughts are sort of ephemeral. They blow away like a handful of spices in the wind. This thing has a solidity and a seemingly independent, right? Presence and gravity in a sense of its own. It is an unmoving point. And therefore, right, it can, uh, it can sort of order and pull other psychological contents into its orbit. And like, if that all sounds pretty mystical, it's because, it's because it is, it's like pretty mystical, right? Even if you think about it in practical terms, and, you know, I can cash that out in sort of cognitive science terms to some extent. But the point is that, you know, as we are making an approach to the self, in the Jungian sense, we are moving out of the normal frame of reference where we treat our ego as the, the fixed ground. And what we are moving towards is a psychological reality that nevertheless somehow transcends the regular categories of division and is capable because of its centrality and solidity and gravity of enacting, you know, in, enormous change, enormous transformation. Um, so that's sort of the direction that Jung lands on it and, it and it's elaborated from there. But obviously that's hard for people to get. I don't know how he rolled this stuff in session with clients. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this might be difficult for you to answer, I guess, but um, is there any way to sort of concretize some example of a philosopher's stone for an individual? Is it something that could be reduced and described in some more accessible way as like some kind of psychological thing that you can kind of rally around or resonate with that helps you transform or yeah um i think so so you know you think about any you know any sort of set of psychological encounters or psychotherapeutic encounters where you're talking about the self, what are you talking about? You know, you're, you're talking about an experience with, and you can take this as metaphorically as you please, God. I mean, and Jung is not shy about this in some ways. I think that it is a misreading to read him as a theist. Uh, I think that that's wrong, but he's very clear that you know, and I think this is a clever epistemological take on his part, right? The thing is that no philosophical thing we can do epistemologically can ever provide us, right? With, with definitive evidence of the existence or non-existence of God. It's a fool's errand to chase that question in a way. However, as he points out, it's like, it's a determinable psychological reality that people have experiences of this kind. And, you know, whether or not these experiences represent the center of creation or whether they simply represent some configuration of the human mind, which is common across the species, is not relevant in this way, right? Because it's life-changing. People who make contact with these sorts of things is life-changing. That's why, for instance, his specific commentary, right, which filters down to us through 12-step uh, programs, 
Alcoholics Anonymous, right? We get this like surrender yourself to the higher power. Well, it translates down the line and for a long time it was Jesus and now it's like the identity of the group. But Jung is talking about the self. And that question of the indistinguishability, right? You're never going to resolve that. You're never, ever going to resolve it. But when you have a sufficiently solid encounter of that kind, the resolution is no longer relevant, right? So, I mean, you know, trying to pin that down and be like, well, an example, you know, mystical experiences, I do research in this area. Mystical experiences are pretty broad, but they do have a commonality to them. There is a common structure, which is detectable, right? That seems to be based in, in you know, basic human function in lots of ways. And what do we see? We see dissolution of the self-other boundary. We see uh, suspension of the normal rules of space and time. We see luminosity. Things seem to shine and you, it, it, we have a penetrating vision. Often there is a moral component but typically in a kind of elevated view from above sort of way. That's like, oh, of course the good because the evil is stupid. Like it's not even like a choice. It's like this, the obviousness of it. Not There are negative mystical experiences too, but right? Those kinds of experiences where people suddenly have, um, they inhabit the metaphysics in a way. The stone, a lot of the time, the stone is about the the solidity within your thought that you can use, that you can consult to return to that space when you're not in a mystical space. And doing alchemical work often has the function of producing a kind of hard nexus that can be consulted in a way in your own thoughts that's persistent. So that's still a bit abstract. It's like, imagine you went through a bunch of ritual action and in the end, okay, you, um, had succeeded in having the degree of focus and ritual facility necessary to give yourself a persistent psychological sense of something. Like you see this in Tibetan traditions where they meditate a tutelary deity or ghost into existence. And the idea is you meditate and meditate until it has apparent solidity. And then of course you dissolve it and it fights back and you're supposed to learn about how all things are emerge from the Buddha mind, right? But the point is, imagine that you had a set of experiences which you contemplatively fused into that kind of solidity so that at any time there was like this thing that you could sense hovering at the edge of your mind, not intrusively, right? Not jamming its way in and distracting you with horrible feelings, but just like reminding you of a certain thing. And that by touching with your own thoughts, right? You could reattain a measure of the kind of, you know, penetrating awareness. That is typically how I think about it when I look at the texts and people's experiences. But I think it's useful to ground that out physically. Like I'm an insufficiently good chemist these days, frankly, to do the kinds of operations. And my partner is already very accommodating, but has told me that until we expand our home, I am not allowed to set up an alchemist lab. Uh, although I know some analysts that do have them set up. Um, but I make, this is kind of weird, but so I make stones. <laughs> so for instance, this is a stone uh, and as a stone, it's epoxy, right? So it's, it's made of two part hard epoxy plastic. But what I've done is I've colored it with um, the blackest commercially available paint in the world, the short of Vanta black. And I have uh, like doped it with crumbled up um, gold leaf. Uh, 
this is a symbolic object and nothing more. Like, I don't think that this in and of itself has transformative powers, but as a kind of meditative focus for the sort of thing that I'm talking about, it's very easy to use something solid to sort of embed your, your practice in that sense. So, yeah. Sorry, so abstract. Did that basically at least circumambulate your question? Yes. Yeah. That was, that was great. Thank you. And uh, I, I think it's 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 important to not try and concretize things too much and reduce them down because then then you collapse all the nuance and complexity. But uh, uh, but yeah, that was that was great. Thank you. I'm curious if this uh, kind of train of thought also gets into your work with lucid dreams, both as like this prima materia that we can work with, this really potent unconscious material, uh, but also things that we can orient towards, like actual symbols that we can take out of the dream space and work with. And also in regards to like the mystical experience, especially in, on the lucid front, when we are uh, have some level of cognition in the dreamscape. So how does, how does your work with dreams really come into uh, this landscape? That's an interesting question. That's not one I talk about much. Um, <laughs> so lucid dreams are something I kind of dip into and out of periodically. I was doing a fair bit of work with them a number of years ago because I was trying to figure out the cognitive science of what was going on, which turned out to be a lot harder in, than I initially anticipated. Um, I'm about to go into a new phase because I'm done teaching for four months. And so I have, <laughs> I have two new lucid dream masks, a new EEG set, uh, about a kilogram of silene capensis, uh, and a number of other, I'm, I'm planning on doing some aneuronautics, some fairly deep aneuronautics in the next few months. So the interesting thing about combining this stuff with dream work uh, and with lucid dream work, you know, in the same way as the Vajrayana schools and like the dream yogas of Naropa um, point out that doing meditative and contemplative exercises is often substantially accelerated if you do them in a lucid dream state. My sense is that trying to do alchemical work um, sort of in that state is likewise likely to pick up pace. Like it's likely to act as a sort of a force multiplier. Um, I have done some light work in that area and my particular approach to alchemy is not primarily um, chemical in its orientation anyway. Uh, so I have developed a sort of subset of alchemy, um, which I call narrative alchemy. Um, and so the theory is this, it's not fundamentally that it's about matter. This is sort of my proposition rather than Young's. It's not fundamentally that it's about matter. Matter is just a useful projective substrate upon which to do the work. You want to externalize it, manipulate it in the environment. So the, the move that I made some time ago um, is uh, I have done a lot of personal and professional work for almost 40 years with role-playing games. So I do a lot of work. I do research in the area. I run games. I've been involved in this since it was, you know, um, under the banner of Satan in the early 80s. And uh, so consequently, it's not hard for me to recognize that role-playing games, and you see this with things like virtual reality too, are a forum where people very rapidly and very readily project themselves onto the substrate. It's not hard for people and it often catches them by surprise, right? The, people don't have to play a role-playing game very long before they begin to have emotional reactions. And of course we see this generally with fiction, right? So, you know, when, when we experience re emotional reactions watching Shakespeare in the park, 
one of the standard explanations that you will hear used is like, right, with normal things, it's like, well, people have emotional reactions to movies because they look so realistic. But if you watch Shakespeare in this park, like, it doesn't look realistic. You are not mistaking that for reality, but some level of your brain is emotionally invested. It is projecting into the material, right? That's how it has an effect on you, is that you are capable of projecting yourself onto the substrate. Role-playing games do this very readily. And so much of the work that I've done around that is specifically looking at how, as a substrate, role-playing game and character narrative might be able to facilitate this kind of thing, which I actually think is a huge part of what's going on in fiction, period. So what does that have to do with lucid dreams? Lucid dreams, um, I think, operate in such a way as to offer a rare opportunity to sort of, in a way, play role-playing games with oneself, right? You have a lot of conscious structure, but the way that you're interacting with it, one of the signature things about lucid dreams is, yeah, they're more under your control than regular dreams, but they still push back in counterintuitive ways. And when you get past the initial enthusiast stage in lucid dreaming, where you just fly around and have sex with people, typically you start moving into the space where you are doing sort of metaphysical experiments of various kinds. And most people who I've spoken with, and certainly, you know, after 30 years almost, um, of, of stuff in this, right? Uh, I'm often surprised at what happens. There are some patterns of consistency, right? Like lucid dream characters are bad at math. And if you look at the work of Paul Foley, that's, it's not hard to understand. They have more limited cognitive capacities. But the point is that it still pushes back on you counterintuitively, right? And it, in some ways, all the more counterintuitively, because unlike a regular dream, you're coming in with a degree of consciousness and crispness. Now, if indeed we believe that you know, if we take this kind of projective notion that what you're doing is using a substrate to project your contents and then re-internalizing those contents, right? Manipulating outside yourself to manipulate inside yourself. Then doing that within a lucid dream is the form par excellence. It's all happening in your mind, but it doesn't seem like it's in your mind. It's perfect. And it's a much better circumstance in some ways than um, say active imagination which even in a highly developed way is kind of a crude approximation of a lucid dream, right? So yeah, I think there's a lot of um, potential there and it's something that I've looked at theoretically and therapeutically and um, it's something in fact that I'm sort of working on for my, for my book as well, yeah. I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on this notion of the narrative alchemy. It, it makes a lot of sense to me and in a lot of ways that we've approached different practices like here at Golden Shadow, like working with, the kind of archetypal creation of yourself as a character and then creating a shadow version and having that interact and like realizing how much of that inner material can be worked with when it's externalized, when it's contained in these figures. And, you know, how can one begin to kind of work in that alchemical space through narration? Yeah. So, you know, when I'm teaching this stuff, and actually therapeutically too, right? I would start with the psychodynamic hypothesis. And typically I address this by addressing the unit of bias, which is that the really weird thing is that we all have this bias that we are singular unified beings. That's bizarre. It doesn't match up with the evidence. It doesn't match up with the scientific evidence. It doesn't even match up with the evidence of our experience, right? You know, the, the clearest example that I can think of in support of the psychodynamic hypothesis is just the very common expression, what was I thinking? 
which people of course say regularly, right? What was I thinking? Oh, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know, it was like something took me over. Okay, so from that position, you know, the idea with narrative alchemy is just, we are intrinsically narrative creatures, right? We, st stories, we are in a very real sense made of story, right? And we don't think about it this way and you gotta be careful again about literalizing and reifying that. But like, you think about it, it's like, you know, when we receive stories, that's where our cultural substrate from comes from. We get repeated stories about who we are and what we did. We tell other people's stories. We go, we come home from work and we tell stories about what happened. Then we go to relax and we consume other stories, right? The news fundamentally is made out of stories of a particular kind, right? They have to have a certain kind of boring tone to them because that's what we expect of serious things and right stories really form this substrate and when you're dealing with people therapeutically their commitment to their story uh, is often incredibly strong and can be wickedly hard to break through the idea that they might be able to reconceptualize their story we do not however have that same kind of attachment once we get it sort of outside to borrow Jung's term right that ego zone and so there's all kinds of interesting examples of this in therapy. So for instance, you know, uh, chair work, which is a pretty common therapeutic technique, it comes out of Gestalt, you see it in EFT, right? Well, in chair work, what are you doing? Like you have two chair work and empty chair work. So let's take two chair work. You've got a natty self-critical voice, right? That's always at you, at you, at you, at you. Well, what you do is you project it into the other chair and you start to have a conversation with it. When I first learned chair work, I kind of went meh because I thought, how is this different than other kinds of inner work or inner visualization? But something about the spatialization of it makes a difference. When you do empty chair work, you're working with somebody that you have unfinished business with, right? A loved one that for some reason, maybe they're dead, maybe you're estranged, maybe you just feel emotionally incapable of talking to them. But the point is you put them in the chair to start to have this conversation about feelings. You imagine their face, you concretize them into the space. And in so doing, you can just have a simply different experience having externalized them. Same thing, journaling, right? Uh, anything where you can externalize the contents from this like maelstrom in your head. You can push that still further though, right? So you can look at things like the Solomon effect, right? Which is this, um, it's, a, it's a noted scientific effect where people if you ask people to solve a complex ethical problem from the first person, they perform considerably worse than if you ask them to perform it from the third person. Like it's as simple as shifting perspective. Likewise, you can improve people's performance considerably if you first ask them to consult in their heads a wise person who they know, which fundamentally is the basis of the sort of internalization of the sage stuff that you see with what would Jesus do or putting up the sayings of Epicurus, right? These attempts to like create in your head, this person. And there's countless instances of this where externalizing in that way, right? But there's a funny thing happening there if you think about it. Because when you externalize in that way and talk to a part of yourself, you aren't completely exiling and dissociating it in the way that people typically do that causes them all kinds of problems with complexes, right? Where they deny it, they cut it off, they push it out. And then it's it's Gollum skulking around in the dark, right? Or it's Peter Pan's shadow cut off from his feet. It causes them problems. Instead, you're placing it at arm's length, which keeps it within the bound of your mind, but not within the bound of your identification, within the bound of your mind, but not your identity. And you begin having a dialogue. 
And the thing is, when you look at this in terms of like the neurodynamics and what we know in the cognitive science of the brain, this seems to quite closely actually approximate what's really happening in the brain, which obviously doesn't have like a glowing soul cell anywhere in it, at least not what we've discovered, um, right? So you're getting that kind of dynamic going. What narrative does especially well, and fiction does especially well, is it naturally pulls on this. Characters are a natural substrate for us to project on. We do it all the time without thinking. Kids do it, right? Adults do it. We all, we're all doing it anyway. And the difference is that if you, um, in, this is now moving into my own theory, but if you structure that material in the right way, it's actually becomes possible to affect quite substantial transformations in your own psychological by sublimating stuff out and then re-internalizing it. And this has been recognized for a long time. I mean, in some ways that's a theory of catharsis, right? For, for um, tragedy by Aristotle. The difference is that's a mass audience thing and it only addresses sort of mass audience concerns. If you're thinking about it in individual terms and the sort of stuff that I've done around role-playing, you can, if you know what you're doing, target very specifically, right? So that what you're getting at is a sort of symbolic sideways representation of people's material. And suddenly it's, they don't have to come at it head on. It's not as radioactive. They can deal with their material in this symbolic form. And really, if you think about it, that's present everywhere in depth and the post-depth stuff, you know, uh, sand tray stuff, right? It's the same thing. So we do lots of this, but this is a much more, um, this is sort of coming at it in a much more directly alchemical sense, right? Pulling that language in and, and so on. I'm, I'm curious if this has relation to like the internal family systems, you know, these, these kind of next evolutions of like assault part where, where we can actually create those characters and interact with them. And obviously uh, IFS has like very particular um, sort of definitions of each of these parts, but that seems to be a particularly powerful modality that allows people to uh, enact those types of transformations. Because as you said, you get to interact with the boundaries of, of these, of this inner material without it being fully identified as yourself. Um, do you see a lot of that, you know, in the kind of parts work that is kind of, you know, from the last couple of decades as well? Sure. So uh, I will totally admit that I was late to the party on IFS. Um, and when I finally came to it and started going through the book, you know, I bought like six books in one go and started drilling through them. I was like, this is just young. Like what? <laughs> right? Now, I revised my opinion thereafter. And I decided that while it does share a lot of the DNA, the difference is this. The IFS strips the mythological level off to a significant extent. It is restored because it's present within the spiritual nature of the self in IFS, okay? But initially it strips it off. It gives us very clean, sanitized terms and a sequence to go through. It means that for people that are relatively concrete, relatively concrete, it's a lot easier to handle. Jung, on the other hand, it's like, God bless if you have the temperament for that kind of thing. But like, whereas IFS is like, okay, like here are the different types of protectors and here's the sequence that we're gonna go through to address your trauma. Jung is more like, okay, everybody, like let's pile into the yellow submarine, we're going to hell. You know, like that, and that kind of like face first mythological approach is very appealing to some people that have high, um, you know, a high abstraction capacity and have, you know, some people are attracted to it, but it isn't for everybody. 
Um, so I think that there is a lot of fundamental similarity there uh, in, in terms of the structures that they're using. And so, yeah, IFS and modern parts work is very, very similar to this kind of thing. The difference I would be proposing, I guess, is that IFS and most therapeutic systems fundamentally frontline the things that you're doing, right? They attempt to render it transparent in a client-centered way. And the whole point in some ways of using a narrative alchemy approach would be to use the fiction to forget that what you're doing is working with yourself, which good fiction does, right? In good fiction and good role-playing, you stop paying attention, right? The, the medium becomes transparent. And instead you merely experience the emotional moves. And when you finally come up, you, you're like, oh, right? Like when you come out of a really good film or a really good novel and you emerge from that dissociative state to recognize that the emotional reactions you've been having are just, you know, but they're real emotional reactions that really connect with parts of you. And so that's the difference. IFS is largely transparent as most modern parts work is, but what I'm proposing is a system that <laughs> taps into the alchemical propensity for a little bit of, um, uh, obscurity, I think, useful obscurity. Here's a bit of a segue, but um, Anderson, I'm wondering if you perceive a rising interest in Yun's work, just generally speaking, and maybe among the youth. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that's you seem to perceive. And if so, do you see this as being a positive thing? Do you think there's a lot of danger in misinterpreting or co-opting Yun's ideas in all these weird ways where people don't really understand what he actually means? Uh, what's your perception of this cultural shift, let's say? Okay, so that's an interesting, it's a double question. So the first part, like without question, you know, the, the only two points, you know, I teach the university courses on Jung and the degree of interest that I have seen, it's always there, right? It's always, there's always an underground current. People have always been into him. There he is on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like he's always around. And he's had his contribution to conventional psychology that typically doesn't really get recognized, right? He's persona non grata in conventional academy. I've been making the argument for 10 years that that's about to flip. Like I think Jung is about to come into a degree of renewed attention at the academically respectable level. And so far I've had a good track record. Psychedelics made a roaring comeback and man, that was an uphill battle for me to argue. Um, so definitely there is something there, but like the only two pieces of evidence that you need are Jordan Peterson and BTS. Like between those two things, there is a degree of cultural prominence that is just I think maybe literally unprecedented. And Jordan, you know, I know Jordan, right? I've known Jordan for a long time. Um, we're both here in Toronto. You know, we were colleagues, we've worked together on things. I know Jordan. Uh, so, you know, Jordan as a phenomenon is a little bit the right place at the right time. You know, Jordan, I think kind of caught, um, you know, a moment in, in, in the culture. Oh, BTS is a <laughs> BTS is a K-pop band. So you'd be forgiven for not knowing if you don't listen to K-pop, which I don't normally, no, but I've listened no. to their albums a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so BTS, what's BTS? BTS is this K-pop band, arguably the biggest band in the world. Okay. And the, they're, I mean, they're truly enormous. And to understand the biggest band in the world, you have to think about like, yo, what about the Beatles? But then factor Asia, 
which is this like it's an afterthought in the Western mind a lot of the time. But the point is, like, if something takes off in China, it instantly dwarfs whatever is going on in England, you know. Um, so BTS caught the young bug and they've released a series of albums based on the work of Murray Stein. It's just weird. It's one of these things like, uh, you know, uh, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart have a cooking show that makes you wonder if you are in fact living in the matrix. But this K-pop band has hit the Jungian, gotten the Jungian bug. And the thing is they've released a series of albums on Shadow and Persona and so on and so forth. And every one of those albums is being listened to by hundreds of millions of people. Like it's an exposure that really, I think, is just utterly unprecedented and probably is is giving Jung penetration uh, into many countries in Asia where he has no presence at all. Like every time I've checked, you know, um, people, Hong Kongese friends that I have, no Freud, who's young, no idea, no idea. Right. I think that that is about to change quite radically. And so, you know, you look at that, you look at the currency of certain union ideas. I think there is an academic currency that's about to be, I hope, because I do work in that area, uh, that's about to be recognized. So, yeah, in some ways, I think Jung is poised to be bigger than maybe ever. The flip side, am I worried about Jung being appropriated or watered down or corrupted or misused? Um, yes and no. Like, there is always a danger with any sophisticated tradition of inner work that the techniques of those things be taken in a half measure uh, and then turned into sorcery. So, like, anybody that begins on a path of inner work, if they drop out halfway through, there's a reason that we have all these myths and fairy tales and stories about people that then become sorcerers. And when I teach that in class, I very often get a student you know, jam their hand in the air and be say, what do you mean by sorcerers? And I mean, and I say, people who practice black magic for money is what I mean by sorcerers. Like the guy who lives down the road that will cast a love spell on somebody that doesn't want your love or will kill uh, somebody if you want them to be killed. And you can be, again, as metaphorical or literal as you wish. But the point is taking a half measure of any system of inner work is essentially sorcery. You can cultivate a tremendous degree of charisma, an enormous degree of understanding of other people. If you want to manipulate people, taking the half measure of transformation is the method par excellence. And that's why traditional systems, frankly, guard carefully against their adherents doing this stuff. So that is always a risk, okay? But the flip side of it is, like the alchemists themselves, some of them worried about this and thus made their work obscure. That was why this stuff is so friggin' hard to read because they wanted to protect it. But the flip side of it is no, because if you don't know what, if you're not in the right mindset, you just can't make it work, kind of, right? Like you can learn, you can go and, and you know, go blow dust off the dusty text and, you know, go through and try to master the secrets of alchemy for, you know, selfish profit. But the point is that unless you internalize some of the core kind of psychological realities and moves, you don't get anywhere with it. And just internalizing those things um, is a kind of Trojan horse that alters the way that you relate to the world. You know, as soon as you're like, aha, I'll dissolve the boundary between myself and my own unconscious and myself and the world, and then I'll control people. It's like, ha ha ha, no, 
No, what happens instead is that you end up being dosed by something you don't anticipate, and then you don't probably want that anymore in the same way. You know, it, it sort of, it has a backwash transformation effect. So it's like the old thing, right? Um, you know, pe people have variable reasons for wanting to pursue enlightenment, but anybody that actually hits that, it's like, that's not what you got, but that doesn't matter. What gets you in the door is not the same thing as you end up seeking. And I think the same thing probably applies to the, the sort of deeper and more exotic aspects of, of Jung. Yeah. All right, Anderson, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting. I took a lot of notes <laughs> that I need to read back on. Uh, but I'm wondering, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, you mentioned a book that you're writing. Uh, do you want to advertise anything for yourself? Oh, geez. I hate advertising <laughs> myself. Uh, in general, to be honest. Um, advertising is also sorcery. I would direct everybody to <laughs> the century of the self and the work of uh, I, uh, Ion Kuli, Kuliascu. Um, Kulianu. Kulianu. Ion Kulianu. Anyway. Uh, uh, what? So uh, pitch time. Uh, there are two things I have had now for a year in suspension, an upcoming hypothetical YouTube series. I released a series of videos that got wildly out of control in terms of length and content, and then realized that I would be better off structuring. So I have been working for the past year on and off, um, on what is prospected to be a multi-part, maybe 50, part series called uh, Opus, uh, in which I intend to get into alchemical theory, depth psychology, cognitive science, lucid dreams, all, all the stuff I like, altered states, and every other damn weird thing, but sort of trying to tie that together into a somewhat unified take. And so right now that's vaporware, um, but uh, I do, I have an enormous amount of stuff, title sequences filmed, I bought a chair, so hopefully that will come out soon. The book also I'm trying, I've made headway. Um, when I'm teaching, it's hard, but I've got the next four months with a bit more time. The similar kind of material, um, a bit more theoretically driven, but the projected title of the book is uh, uh, Shape Shifting, A Practical Guide, um, and has to do with this, but also pushing it substantially into political dimensions um, because I have increasingly come to believe that the slightly paranoid thread that the stress of the last few years have produced in people is best addressed not with the kind of rationalist sword, but rather with uh, uh, the shapeshifters approach. And that's kind of clinically derived insight, but I'm trying to explicate that. So yeah, shapeshifters, and that's again, altered states, depth work, um, and and all the general weirdness that I like tied together with, uh, with the cognitive science base. So yeah, neither one's released, but I don't know, keep, keep your eye on the skies or something. Thank you. Thank you, Anderson. That all sounds really, really interesting. So we hope to see it out soon. Thank you for coming by here at the Golden Shadow with this wonderful talk on Jung and alchemy and cognitive science. Um, we do have some events coming up. Uh, tomorrow we'll be running a mythology and fairy tale themed workshop on Vasilisa the Wise at 12 p.m. Pacific. Um, we'll also be uh, having a few more guests coming up this month. Uh, Psychedelics, a Jungian Perspective with Sam Hines on Saturday, May 15th. And we'll be doing a deep dive into tarot uh, on the magician card with meme analysis and spirit fire tarot on the 16th of this month. So check out goldenshadow.org for more information. And thank you once again, Anderson, for coming. We really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you. This was great. And I appreciated the opportunity to talk. Hopefully we get a chance to talk again. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Take, take care. Have a nice weekend. Take care. Bye, everybody. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.